Good morning and welcome to Fencing by the Book, the podcast where we take an in-depth look at the early Lichtenhauer longsword glosses. I'm your host, Mike Smoridge, and joining us are our panel of Johanna Hopfgardner, Michael Chillister, Stephen Cheney, and TQ. Although at the moment, T is making a cocktail. This is episode 16, <laughs> where we'll be discussing lines 51 to 52 on the Twerhau. We've just finished recording the last episode, so we haven't been up to that much. On the other hand, we had a question from our listener, Brandon, who expressed an interest to learn more about our kendo story. Unfortunately, none of us can remember what this kendo story was. So, <laughs> <laughs> so Steve, tell us a kendo story. <laughs> um, well, kendo is a... <laughs> the sport from Japan. Yeah, it's... this is going well. <laughs> People are really good at it in Japan. And what was your way... favorite kendo event? My favorite kendo event, probably. Oh, I, I used to. I went to it twice actually. It's an event in uh, northern Sweden, and you go there in January, and it's just like a big kendo seminar. There's no um. There's no tournament or anything. It's just like a bunch of people doing kendo. And like the main event is for like 15 minutes on the last day, we go outside and do kendo in the snow in like the sub zero weather. So it was pretty cool. Sweet. So is there a heavy metal soundtrack? No, there, there was no heavy metal soundtrack. I was going to say, uh, so it's Japanese swordfish, but I guess if there's no tournament, <laughs> it doesn't really fit. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, yeah. So that was my favorite kendo event. Tournaments are okay. I guess if I could compare tor- like uh, kendo tournaments to um, longsword tournaments, I would say kendo tournaments tend to be well. They're they're more um, they're they're less uh, technologically advanced. Usually, you have to send in like what? a paper application <laughs> to do a kendo tournament. <laughs> but as far as the way they're run. Usually things run either on par to a HEMA tournament or slightly more smoothly, but still there's it, delays and stuff. And, is that yeah. just because there's a culture of having more referees with more experience who are like? Well, that's that's part of it. The the refereeing is you know way better, of course. So in kendo, you need to have for local tournaments usually at least third don, which usually takes like seven to eight years to get third don. And um, sometimes fourth don, which is uh, three more years beyond that, to uh, be a referee. And also, the targets are way more limited, and it's kind of more obvious when a point happens in kendo. So the judging is more accurate, but you know, people still make mistakes sometimes, and yeah. But it's against the rules to get salty about. Judging mistakes in kendo. So. I've got. Is that I've a shameful Steve, I've got an important question for you. Go ahead. Um, <laughs> did you leave a practice kendo Easter egg in your in your book? No, I did not. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, I'm sure we'll see that in your oh, next book, right? Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, sure. Now the the next book is gonna be just like all kendo, but in disguise. So. Don't worry about that. <laughs> Wonderful. All right. Yeah. 
Thank you very much for Kendo time. Should we do this every episode? Kick off with a <laughs> random other sports discussion. Kendo corner. Sure. We'll do MOF next week. All right, brilliant. Uh, Johanna, could you start us off with the, the German rendering of these two couplets? Yes. Twer zu dem Pflück, zu dem Ochsen hart gefüg. Was ich wohl twert, mit Sprüngen dem Haut gefährt. Brilliant, thank you very much. And Steve, could you give us Harry's translation? To the pflug, drive its fair, form the ox hard there, make a spring and fare well, and his head is in peril. <laughs> thank you very much. So, this is another section with tons and tons of gloss going with the couplets. I think it's fair to say. Well, those uh, are just not actually that much gloss. This is really short. It's definitely a lower density yeah. glossed a couplet than the last episode was. Yeah, I'm just looking quickly scanning the uh, Michael Chidester's compilation because I haven't done any homework for this, and most of it <laughs> looks like it's spare, isn't it? Just confusingly. So, Steve, can you give us a quick overview of what the gloss plays are? Can I just throw you under the bus? Yeah, sure. Why not? So you're basically doing a spare copter. No, I'm just kidding. Well, kind of, <laughs> in a way. So in uh, in Danzig and Ringick, you start with a low Zverhau to uh, the lower opening of their right side, um, or I guess of their left side, of your right side. And then you cut around with a Zverhau to the upper opening of of their right side. And in Lev, that's reversed. You start with the the upper opening, and then you move to the lower opening. And then for Lev and Danzig, I'm pretty sure it just says keep doing that crosswise, you know, one to the upper, one to the lower, uh, one side to the other. And in Rayak, it gives a more specific sequence of, you know, do the one, two, three, four, and then you withdraw with a cut. Yeah, so. and in Ringek in particular, you're going low, high, high, low, um, which is a really annoying thing to try and actually make all four parries on. If you ever try to parry yeah. someone doing this to you, we call that Meyer style. <laughs> and the only piece of Meyer that happy internet seems to know is one diagram that shows that. And this section sort of introduces. Um, Attacking to the the four exposures, the the openings. We've already come across this, haven't we? With the girdle of the man, it's kind of like the the waist, the axe, oh, yeah. the belt, have the we, war. Yeah. Have we have we figured out where people used to wear their belts back then? Oh no, we just chatted about <laughs> it and then did no work afterwards. <laughs> I, I think I, on the Discord before I'd gone into like an in depth looking up illustrations and decided that um that it was the natural waste so like higher than where we have our genes these days but my usual the... rule of thumb for the natural waste is that it's about elbow height that's also where the waste on lots of cuirasses is well the, the pretzel man i posted earlier is wearing a belt isn't he <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> yeah but his, his physio physiology might be a little bit weird <laughs> for for the Tsverhau one, for this one, like my rule of thumb is pretty much if you're aiming for the head, it's the upper. If you're aiming for the torso, it's the lower. 
So yeah, I find trying to go under the elbow is helpful because it makes the parry pretty much impossible. Like if you're aiming around the lower upper arm, something or whatever, somebody can drop their hands enough to get the parry in still. But if you get down to below the elbow height, it's pretty much impossible to drop your hands low enough to cover it with a typical parry. You'll either get tagged in the hands or you'll get tagged under the under the hilt of your sword in the body. And you can get them in the floating ribs, which is really nice for uh, making somebody feel it even through their jacket. Here we go. <laughs> Back in January, end of January, was when I was last looking at belts. This is an interesting block of text. Uh, probably the first thing to bring up, the, you'd mentioned that uh, Oxen flew. We have this conversation about like different openings, right? Um, and there's a line in the glosses here saying that you know that the uh, the four openings are, you know, the ox is the high one and the flug is the low one. I think that's in Lev uh, offhand. Yeah, Danzig and Lev both have that. Yeah. Um, and it's like you've been told before that these are the two guards and here they're the four openings, but you haven't actually been told that before uh, in the gloss. This is the first time those terms are used. Um, as yeah, openings. Ox have been used before. Ox have been used briefly in the Krimpow. Fluke has not been used anywhere. Fluke has not been used anywhere, and the idea that these are really guards in this sense hasn't been used either. Um, so that's an interesting little detail. Yeah, it says, it says, you know, you've heard before how the ox and the plow are named two positions or two guards. So they use Lager and Hoot there. And while we have seen ox, it certainly hasn't been established that, you know, that's like a lager, or that lager is anything special at all. I'm pretty sure lager is used when at the first play of the crimp pal. But I have to go But I, my pet theory about this is that this implies that the, the guards are like general common things. Um, so these are ideas that you would likely have known in passing, even if you've never studied Lichtenauer fencing before. They aren't like special Lichtenauer guards. And we'll probably come back to that theme later in a few episodes' time, I expect. I think another wild theory that we came up with this for this is that the order of the Zettel has changed over time. And we're seeing a later revision in which... In which um, the fear lager or the four guards have been moved like to a spot where before they were before and now they're after. What? But I, don't, I don't know <laughs> if there's any like other evidence for that. <laughs> I mean, I, I think it might just be a confused garbled transmission of something. And what they yeah. meant to say was that you've heard before how there are four openings. And now we'll talk about how the four guards are also the four openings. Uh, then you've heard before there are four guards. Maybe. You have had the idea that there's four guards. That's in the list of techniques at the beginning. Or maybe it's a clue about what the class um, structure would have included. Like when the when the guy teaches you the list of 17 techniques, he says, okay, and then these are the four guards and shows you all four. Or, I mean, another possibility is it's referring back to a different text that we don't have. Or 3227A, which we do have. Um, 3227A as the very beginning that you've heard before how Lichtenauer invented the art, but that, but I'm here to tell you that's not true. So, and that's in the very first paragraph. Um, so it's not hmm. out of the question that they're referring to a different that you've probably already read or yeah. something. This is where the idea that I, the idea that 
these are not it's not like Lichtenauer has invented new guards, but that you as a fencer, as a let's use common fencer for convenience, um, will already know some guards, and you might know some names for those guards, like Oxenflug. But now you're having them put into a Lichtenauer tactics idea. So you're like, okay, this is the thing you already know. You already know like this position and this position, and you know these names for them. And now we're going to teach you the idea of using these positions to define openings or whatever. Yeah. Isn't isn't Flug different in 3227A also? Yeah. Yes, although this play is the same, interestingly. Um, which is not hard to understand since this play doesn't actually have anything to do with with plow or plug or odds. Yeah. So but uh, interestingly, Hans Madel doubles down. He he has different names He's for weird. three of the four guards. Or rather, he associates names with different positions for three of the four guards. And his oxen plow play is based on his definition for oxen plow, so it's rather different. Yeah, he's literally yeah. doing it's fair how against like someone who we would call as an, an Albert, right? Yeah. So right, um, Albert, I believe, is his ox position. No, it's his plow yeah. position, and plow is his Albert position. Yeah. So he's he thinks that the purpose of this play is to strike the fair how against people in those two guards. Yeah. So against what we would call Plow and Alber. It's so confusing um, like trying to like say <laughs> Hans Ma like compare Hans Madel's positions. It's like, oh Plow is <laughs> Plow is Alber. <laughs> Alber is Ox. But which one is which? Yeah. But anyway. Yeah. Back to RDL. So that's an interesting yeah. an interesting detail of this stuff. Then when it so actually comes into... Can Sorry, we just on. say that this whole section is a copy-paste of the Noble War? But with cuts instead of thrusts. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe. Sweet episode done, let's go home. <laughs> <laughs> so probably the next interesting thing is why Ringek and Danzig attack the low target first, and how that's even supposed to work without just getting you brained in the head when you try it. Well, if you go super low against somebody who's going high, you can just totally go under them. And you can still hide under your sword. Like, especially if you're squatting a bit, you can get your you can keep your hilt up above your head and still get the blade down to hip height or something. Just about. But you have to be shorter or really squat. Yeah. I've seen it done. And I've seen it done successfully, but what I've not seen done is somebody do that and then have it parried and then follow it with a high cut every time i make a tear this low i never get like i've never seen somebody parry it when i cut a low line to warehouse. right that well, that's, has well, a that's pretty one much 100 percent uh yeah hit rate well it's surprising right they're not expecting you to do that it's surprising and, it's a really um, long way to go to cover and you, and you probably don't do it all the time you probably only do it every once in a while what's the so when you're doing a super low line fur how, are you still co covering your head at all, or is it just the noob middle how with extra steps? Um, I try to do it still covering the head. You basically can push the left hand up to bring the point down, and then you have a so you have a Fiore talks about when he's talking about uh, middle middle cuts. Um, he talks about their path being from like the neck to the knee. I think is the phrasing. Uh, Michael Chidester would know that offhand. Pardon? Uh, that sounds right, yeah. 
Uh, whereas with the terrier, the range of targets seems to be, roughly speaking, from the head to the hip or so. And if you look at the difference between a, a more conventional grip, where you're holding the sword in kind of a, middle, a, normal, a normal cutting position, it's really hard to actually cover... Like, if you get up above your head, you can't cut down again because you've broken your wrist structure. Um, so you can cut from around the neck height to around, but you can cut all the way down to the leg and the knee. Yeah. Um, whereas if you're in a twer position with your sword over your head, the length of your blade gives you a kind of maximum distance down you can go without moving the sword under your head. And that maximum yeah. distance is about the waist um, or the hip uh, with a bit of a squat. But you can still just about keep the cross guard in front of your face if you do that. Makes sense. But then if you've got that angle on the blade, then it's super short range, isn't it? It is. You have to be really, really close. Um, the picture in the Glasgow shows like the tip landing and the position being really close. But I thought you could only land cuts with the middle of the blade. <laughs> you could definitely hit somebody in the ribs with the tip of the blade and make them sad. <laughs> Might yeah, be a but cut. you can also cut somebody in the head with the strong of your blade and make them sad. Yes. Um, yeah. But on a more serious note, at the same sort of range you're cutting to the head with the middle of the blade, if you push the hand up, you'll drop the tip of the blade down to the lower opening. So it's roughly the same physical distance. So when we're changing these cuts from exposure to exposure, the blade range is changing. So are we meant to be using footwork to adjust the range between us potentially my read is mostly that i'm going to change which part of the blade i'm striking with based on which opening i'm striking to so in the strikes to the higher opening it'll be closer down more towards the middle of the blade in the strikes towards the lower opening it'll be more towards the weak that that would be pretty difficult to alter the distance with each how if you're doing several in a row yeah. But you're meant to be springing out wide with every single st cut. There's no you? footwork described in this play. Well, springing out wide is hard enough just to do on its own. If you're trying to also alter the distance, then that's twice as hard. Yeah, but T, the, next, the very next play says each and every Tverhau needs a spring. Right, sure. Yeah, you can do Tverhau, like spring from side to side, which we're going to talk about, right? But... Yeah. Um, <laughs> But if you're changing the distance with each one, then not only are you spring to the side, but you're spring slightly forward or backwards. And you have to do that. You have to like do some kind of like Destreza calculation <laughs> in your head in order to <laughs> pull that off. So are we going to talk about that now, spring to the side? I think we should. Yeah. Okay. Um, I want to do one more thing based on the Twitter to the four openings first before we go on to the next couplet, if possible. Go for it. Nothing. Which is that the last thing Ringick puts at the end of this play um, is a withdrawing with a cut to the head. Um, and it's one of the very few explicit withdrawings anywhere in the, um, anywhere in the glosses. So it has yes. the, the Ringick sequence is that you cut to the, you cut the turret to the plow, then you cut to the ox on the other side, then you cut to the ox on the first side, then you cut to the plow on the second side, then you withdraw yourself with a cut to the head. That's pretty mega. Where, where else are there? Is there an explicit abzug? There's, there's the Zucker section? There's one in the Zekrur. Um, there's a couple in the additional plays that are sometimes associated with the Ringek. And I can't there's remember two. very many others. There's there's one the oh, yeah. Thank you. Yep. Slice yourself off. 
but mm-hmm. this this particular one um, feels really, really factually because you've done a sequence of cuts, which feels like a gang. Um, like, a, you know, if you're fighting a gang of four or five blows, you come in, you do your four or five blows, and you're taking yourself away again. Gang, gong meaning like a turn, not like yeah. a gang of people that you're fighting against. Yeah, sorry, <laughs> I just used that term without defining it, didn't I? Yeah. But that seems to have been the format for a lot of tournament structures, both armored and unarmored. Striking like, and receiving a certain number of blows. blows. Yeah. There's a hilarious anecdote somewhere, getting off topic, of a guy in uh, who wanted to fight an armored tournament with poleaxes to submission. And the ref, the like the lord who was sponsoring it was basically like, look, you can't you can't just fight to submission. You have to pick a number of strikes. Uh, and the guy was like, okay, can we pick like 100? And the ref was like, yeah, that's fine. <laughs> no. So they fought with poleaxes to 100 strikes or submission. And he submitted. The guy who wanted to go to submission lost after like 20 blows. Hmm. Yeah, 20 blows with a poleaxe is a bad day, eh? That format is still used for academic fencing today. I mean, specifically, yeah. They typically do a uh, ganga of 10, I believe. Um, although it changes from school to school somewhat. Yeah, it's like three ganga of 10 to 20, isn't it? And you have the second standing in to put their swords in the way when you're done. Yeah, they also have guys who are wearing actual armor, like chainmail, whose job it is to rep- pull the fighters apart if they keep going after the 10. Um, so when the referee calls halt between Ganga, they, they actually physically yank the fighters back. I've seen some tournament matches that could have benefited from that in Hema, actually. We're going to put the uh, put the ref in in full armor with a poleaxe. Keep the other interesting thing um, in a video I saw of ac- academic fencing was that the referee wasn't watching the fighting. He was actually had his head down and he was listening um, to, the, to the sound of the blows. And that was how he was counting. So it wasn't like, I've seen HEMA people try to implement that and be like, get into these weird philosophical discussions about what a blow is. And for them, it was clear. It's clang, 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 clang. And you count the clangs. And that's how you know when the match is, when the round is over. Uh, which is a much more efficient way of doing it. Yeah. That also lines up with some of the period descriptions of formats like this, where they, they talk about blows that are thrown and either hit or are parried. But they don't really talk about what happens if like a blow is voided or anything. Like that question of, you know, what does a feint count, right? Is just not addressed by something like that. If there's blade contact, if the blade hits something, it counts. Right. So clang, 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 whoosh, clang. And you can hear the hits and you can hear the I mean, everyone who's done a tournament knows you can hear when things when you hit the person's jacket or when you hit their sword or whatever. You what you don't hear is when you they whoosh and they whiff it. That also sort of requires that you have a cumulative number of blows for both fighters and you don't count them separately. Yeah. That also, coincidentally, is how I define if somebody has the four. If they whiff, they didn't have the four. That's fair. For for PDF right of way? Uh, yeah, sure. Right of way. <laughs> Everyone loves right of way. I'm not um, sure when you. Well, I guess the thing problem. is that in that academic mensure fashion, there's no footwork. So they're just right, stepping they, into the pocket and trading blows, kind which of. Which like also makes you wonder about the, the whole stepping backwards thing in KDF. So the, the no stepping in academic fencing is relatively recent. That was imposed in like the 18th century. For a while before that, there was a, um, a kind of restricted footwork space you could do. So you could step forwards and backwards a bit, but not super much. 
There used to be a version of the game where you had like a cross on the floor and you could step along that cross, but you couldn't step off it. But in the play that we're talking about from Ringek, you do step back, presumably. Yeah, well, you withdraw yourself anyway. Right, which I feel implies stepping back, because how else do you withdraw? And the other thing which implies withdrawing, I think, is that your fifth action here is just a normal overhaul, not another cut in most circumstances. So you need the extra space to actually make that action. So you're kind of coming in, you're doing a series of close range actions, and then you're moving backwards and making a long cut while you do that. Right. So if we were going to speculate about role restrictions, it might be that you could only step backwards once you've completed your number of strikes. Yeah. And every example of an absurd that I can think of comes off after a series of blows. Hmm. I want to mention real quick, the, in uh, Danzig and Lev, uh, the gloss for this couplet ends with always one to the ox, one to the plow, crosswise from one side to the other, to head into body. So there's that to head into body callback again. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and Danzig and Lev seem to be alternating, like, so on one side, plow on the other, plow on the other, whereas Ringek is seeing openings on the same side as well as he goes between sides. Yeah, it's totally unclear what's going on with Danzig and Lev there. Well, I mean, I the way that I read it is he they want you to mix it up. You know, mix up mm-hmm. high and low, mix up, you know, one side to the other. If you do it exactly by the book, exactly by what they're saying, then you're just going to hit, like, you know, low on the right, high on the left over and over again, which kind of defeats yeah. the purpose. <laughs> that, that might be... I mean, you could also read it as saying that you just have to continually change. So if you're doing one to the ox, another to the plow, that could be on either side. So ox, plow, plow, ox could be two pairs of one to the ox, another to the plow just as easily. Yeah. Um, But yeah, you could read it as just a single diagonal line back and forth. Which I think is silly. (laughs) Not the best strategy. Although if you do that, you'll tend to get them in the hands on when they try, which is kind of nice. Yeah. I um, call it the tilted Tvercopter. Yeah. <laughs> the obvious comparison with this whole play is the Tvercopter that everybody does, where they just cut from side to side very quickly. And mixing in change of heights is a really effective way to make that technique more effective. It's yeah. much, much harder to make a sequence of parries, especially because the you can choose to change when you're changing the target just by moving the position of your left hand on the hilt, like up or down, uh, you can change the finishing position of a twer really late in the action. So when somebody commits to parrying high, for example, you can late, while you, once you see them begin to parry high, you can drop the point and drop it low and come in underneath the parry. Or when you see them commit to the really low parry, you can lift the point up and smash through their weak instead. You see, if I was rewriting as Ethel and my name was Lev, I'd probably teach this section and then the what to do if they parry you. So I'll probably be like, here's the twercopter. Oh, if they parry you, you can also throw in a, a duplier in behind their blade. That's a good question. Yeah, why is the yeah. order this way round? And also, when would you do um, the stuff from the previous episode? with the bind stuff and winding stuff, um, and when would you just go straight to the ox and the plow? 
I mean, my hyper-reductive answer would be that this is the explanation of what the cutting around is in the previous section of the where you hook it to cross, et cetera. And this is streamlining that and saying how the cut around works. Uh, or at least Lev is, since he starts with the standard Tver, not the one to the plow. Um, I don't know if that's true, but it could be that, you know, he's building piece by piece. And the next piece he's giving you is he told you that when to cut around, now he's telling you how to cut around. So if you are applying that, then would you do the hilt knock with just the first one? Or are you going to try to do a hilt knock with every single cut around? Uh, I would say you do the hilt knock when he parries. Yeah, every parry? Or just, the so every or just the really strong ones. So so every single... When, so you're doing this to the plow and the ox. As so established, after, the hilt knock is pretty hard to do in the first place. So. Right, yeah. I don't know. I, I've never... Yeah, the hilt knock is tough. Never seen anybody actually do it. I'm going to try and integrate the hilt knock into my tour house when I go back from from quarantine fencing. We'll see how that goes. Yeah. But I don't actually open with uncrossed tower how very often, so I'm not sure how I'm often I'm to set up for. I, I feel like I used to have, I, I, used, I was once taught a drill where, that involved a hilt knock. Maybe off of a crown, a crown parry? Uh, I don't quite remember, but it was not anything I ever used in sparring. It was sort of a silly show-off move yeah. for demonstration cool. to the public or something. Yeah. All right. Do we want to move on to the counters against the Twitter how now? Yeah, what, what time are we at? Um, we should, we're like 35 minutes. Got half an hour episode. late? Yeah, half an hour late. We haven't Wait. even talked about springing sideways, though. Okay, oh, yeah. Yeah. right, let, let's spring sideways. So, I just want to say that I did a, a in-depth analysis of where and how springing is used in Lev, like what words it's associated with. And most of the time, it's I found it was springing sideways in distance, like especially in the wrestling plays. And there are a few times when it's springing to the side with, say, the crimp cow. Um, but most Don't of the, the time, it's... involves springing behind their foot. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And actually, um, if you look at some of the wrestling sources, then the term springing shows up all the time. And if you look at the pony fencing, it doesn't. They don't have any footwork. <laughs> An interesting addition, actually, speaking of wrestling, is that Twer or Twerch is a wrestling step quite regularly. It's a kind of lunge step behind the leg. Uh, Yoli Takala put me onto that at Ring Gothenburg a couple of years back. Hmm. It's in Wallerstein's yeah. wrestling a whole bunch. It's a Twer, isn't it? It's Yeah. So the idea of like a sort of lunging step behind there to get your thigh behind their leg as part of a throw is often described as a sphere. Yeah. So <laughs> show of hands, who here uh, jumps to the side with every one of their sphere house to the other side? With you can't everyone? see my hand, but oh. down. <laughs> uh, hard my no. Down. <laughs> I don't do I, very I, many. I I spring into distance, and then I do like little shuffle steps to the side while firing off my tvercopter. I mean, a small step could still be a spring. You can jump not very far, I bet. What is a spring, exactly? <laughs> well, that's, a, that's the question. I mean, it's, it sounds like... Lunch. Yeah, it sounds like a big jump, doesn't it, spring? When we used to do paired technique judging at long point, I think the decision was that 
any kind of foot movement could be considered a spring um, because it's up to you to know what distance you want. My usual rule of thumb for a spring is that it's going to be an explosive or ballistic foot movement of some kind. Like yeah. a, but it doesn't need to necessarily go a long way to the side. Springing well on one side might be just stepping very deeply on that side. So something I'll often do for a tear is like take a parry and then spring deeply towards the side I want to tear on and throw the tear in at quite close range. And I'm using it mostly to go forwards, but slightly to go out. Yeah. So question, are, are we agreed then that the spring in the in the glasses is not always the same movement? Would you spring the same way with the Krumpau as you do with the Tverhau? I think it's the question. I think it's the same with pretty much everything in the uh, glosses. Is like the definitions can be kind of fluid. So no, I wouldn't say that they're all exactly the same. Yeah, I would probably do a similar footwork action, but the direction I'd move in might be different. Fair, I want to get physically quite close to someone, whereas the crimp I want to get relatively far away. So springing well to the right side with the tear will probably be on a different line to springing well to the right side with the crimp, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm just thinking, like, both, both occasions you want to be leaning well to the right as well. The crump, because you're doing a matrix dodge of their cut, and the fair house so that you're covered by your hilt. Yeah. But then I guess if, when you watch people like Arto Fama fence, the torso is very upright as they twer copter. Yeah, yeah, no leaning at all. Keeping the torso upright really helps with if you're keeping it like very close to your head and driving it from hip rotation. Um, You want to keep the torso pretty upright. And then actually stepping with the increasing the amount of spring helps a lot. Because you need to get your hips to whatever position you want them to be in. You can't lean your body to get your head to that position. If you want your head to be in place X, you have to get your hips fully underneath it. Uh, Which often means they need to cover more distance. Yeah. So one, one thing that's kind of I think everybody can agree on is that doing a sphericopter, just the hand motion, is way faster than uh, stepping from side to side. So if you're intent on stepping, especially if it's like an explosive, uh, you know, committal step, then it's going to take you way longer to do a sphere from side to side than if you're just standing in one spot. like. Well- Doing a that might be some compelling evidence that the tvercopter is not advised by the gloss in that case. Um, I I would agree. That, that yeah. they expect you're going to do a single tver and then do some try to do some fencing off of it before you ever go to the other side. Yeah, and people. So I, I've observed when I was doing when I was studying people's fencing for the purpose of finding when they do passing steps. This was kind of like a side effect. Because some people do passing steps, like, uh, for example, Martin Fabian. He'll do a passing step, like, when he's already in the Krieg in order to step around for a Tsverhau. And when he does it, it doesn't result in a Tsverkopter, because it's usually just a single Tsver. But it also has a much higher success rate Hmm. than just doing a uh, standard Tsverkopter. So it's just one hit, but it's way more likely to hit. You mean going around his opponent? Correct. Yeah. So that's something I find interesting about this section of the gloss as well. It tells you that the reason you're supposed to do this is so that you get um, around so that you can hit to their head. 
And that feels difficult to do if they're not committed to some action already. Um, if they're not committed, they can just turn very easily and track your movement. And you're trying to go around the outside of the circle, so their turn will be much quicker. But from what you're saying about Fabian, it seems that he's doing it, he's making that work to get to his target. Did you observe that he was generally doing it when the opponent was committed to some other action already? I, I don't fully remember. But one thing to note about it is that he's already in very close distance. So, right, it's much harder to turn when you're when they're really close to you as opposed to when they're just circling around you. Right, exactly. So if if I'm at if I'm like initiating an attack from like the two Fechten and I'm trying to step to the side and go around like from that distance, then it's very easy to track because I'm trying to close the distance as I step to the side. But if I'm already in the very close distance, then I can make I feel like you can make a lateral step and have it be more, you know, I guess useful. <laughs> there was a conversation on the Discord recently where people were talking about different unarmed fighting arts that rely heavily on um, diagonal and circular stepping um, and how it's much more common there because of the distance. It seems like we're talking about the same thing. Tverhau is really the closest strike that we have, or at least the strike that can be effective at closest distance. Yeah, I mean, in judo, like when you you basically start like already gripped up with the opponent, like all your steps are pretty much to the side. So, I can see how that would be the case. Yeah, it's interesting. It comes back to something Jack Gasman was saying the other week about how he looks at boxing footwork more than moth footwork for longsword. I think they both have applications. It depends a lot on the range you're in. And watching the, I, I've I've watched a bunch of boxing videos this year for reasons, and a lot of the movements, the, the mechanics that boxers use, just look so like sometimes you can watch a, an uppercut or something and see like just feel the kinetics of how this will work with a sword. But certainly very transferable. Um, I don't get that sense as much when I'm watching um, MMA footwork. Not because it's not applicable, but just because, I don't know, the kinetics aren't as obvious. Um, but boxers put so much power into their actions. There's a thing with boxing, where, there's a thing with MOF where power generation through footwork isn't as much of a feature. Because you're, you can pretty much make a successful touch essentially by throwing your weapon at the opponent in MOF. Like the weight of the weapon is enough to set off the um, the detector if it lands, so you don't need to generate additional power through footwork. Whereas with boxing, you're trying to do physical damage. Yeah, so MOF footwork seems really good for maneuvering and for technical footwork, but as far as some of the the close in actions and the power generation, boxing has a whole lot of of understanding around that. Yeah, MOF footwork is very very focused on distance tactics. So where's the cutoff where we switch from MOF to boxing in terms of footwork? Creep. Is it like somewhere, somewhere around the Krimpow? Is it, is um, it the Terhau? No, it happens in Creek. Um, yeah, I'd pretty my, much say. My short answer you, to that. The, as soon the as you get a bind. The War or the Noble War? Once you're in close and trying to work repeatedly between openings, then you want to be a lot more circular and a lot more focused on power generation and efficiency. Whereas when you're working with distance control at a longer range, then MOF footwork is much more relevant. 
would be my rough answer. Yeah, I'd agree with that. All right, do we want to move on to the counters? We've got about 15 minutes left, let's say. Or shall we wrap up here? Yeah, let's cover the counters quickly so we can be completionists. All right, brilliant. Counters. Uh, Steve, would you be happy to quickly run through the counters? Or Let's see. Um... If Steve doesn't want to, I'm happy to run through the counters. Okay, you can run through the counters, Steve. Yeah, sure, go ahead. Fair enough, unless you really want to, Steve. No, I'm good. Okay, <laughs> so there's like three main counters um, scattered across the different glosses. Um, I haven't done a super comprehensive study of which ones are in which, because Ringic has all three at least somewhere. One of them is to cut under their terrain. So they try to, they throw a tear, you parry it, or they do something and you parry it and they cut around with a tear. And what you do is you come underneath with your own tear so that they hit your sword into their neck. Um, okay. You should be covered under yourself and they get hit. Uh, it's a great technique, but good luck ever getting a score by judges. So if they're, <laughs> if they're attacking, let's say, the left side of your, that hit my microphone, attacking the left side of your head, you're doing a tear underneath. So your blades, coming from the left, your hands are going out to your right. So yeah. probably the first thing to emphasize about most of these counters is that they're not counters against the first Fairhawk, they're counters all of them against a cutter round. Okay. Uh, so the, the described Stuck and Ringek for the Tver under Tver is they cut at, your, at the left side of your head, you parry it, you fall on their sword, and then they cut at the right side of your head, so you cut underneath with a Tverhow. So you're doing one, two, right? They're, you're yeah. parrying the first one, and then you're countering the second one. Then the second one is to, or the second counter is to slice over their arms. So again, they cut, you parry, uh, and when they come around with a trehow, you push forward and slice onto their arms with an overslice uh, to shut them down. And the third one, which exists in a couple of glosses, is to, when you see that they're going to cut to the lower opening, or it's not clear how you recognize this, um, but you essentially drop your point in with your own trehow and thrust towards the hip. Um, or another lower target to block the lower opening fairhow. And that's pretty much your series. So with that blocking the lower one, you're coming across your body? Yeah, you're not trying to go over and underneath. You're dropping through the other direction and opposing directly. Cool. Danzig says that you cut a, fair, a load fair against their load fair and do your throw from there. And then Danzig also has a whole bunch of permutations of the arm slice version. Um, yeah, there's a bunch of crazy to... counters and counter counter. I think there's ultimately there's you get to where he's doing a duplarin against you, and you're countering his duplarin as it's hitting your head. And Dunjik's counters are ridiculous. You counter you counter the uh, hand slice with a duplarin, and then the other person can counter that duplarin with a winding, uh, uh, which goes to. And next slice, and that's the that's where the sequence terminates. But then he also has counters to the to the next slice, so I guess you could <laughs> insert that in there as well. But he story. told me that fencing isn't rock paper scissors, where one technique breeds another. Well, so that's uh, the interesting thing about the counters, right? Um, in theory, they work, but in practice, basically nobody can actually do them in our current fencing game. And I read, one of the major things I read about that is that people are really bad at executing, training them in a way that lets them execute them under pressure. That cutting around with a trehow is a pretty fast action. So if you're not ready to do the counter the moment they're beginning to cut around, you're going to be too late and just get smacked instead. 
I find the under Teferi to be fairly high percentage, as long as you know the person's going to cut around with Teferi, which many people do. I do as well, although I've had a much lower success rate getting it actually scored by judges. <laughs> yeah, let's it's, be honest, we just see Tverhouse flying, hear one of them hit, maybe. Like, you've got no idea which one was on the inside. Well, I've definitely given people points for it, and I've given people control points for it, because if you get it in long point rules, it is a control point, because there's a bind and you hit. And it's yeah, deep. that's great, but Dutch Lions Cup did never give me the points for it, so I gave up right. on it. I've seen people who are really good at the arm slides <laughs> as well. That one's even worse for scoring, because arms, especially um, if there's, well, there's any question that gets thrown out, and at best case scenario, you get a shallow target point, which no one actually wants. So trying to hit the other guy in the head is a much higher scoring strategy. Well, the scoring, the scoring for slices in tournaments is never correct, because the scoring for slices always, like, the, the criteria is always, like, it has to slide along your blade. And countering, <laughs> like, doing it any kind of pressing slice, it doesn't do that. We actually changed that in the long point rules after Eric's um, incident. We evaluated the evidence on what slicing actually does to a person and realized that you don't actually have to draw the sword at all. Um, so I, I, as of 2017, I believe long point no longer requires any kind of action. All you have to do is hold your sword against their arm until the halt, and you get full points. That's that's very progressive, but a lot of other tournaments <laughs> I've been to, it's still they want a soaring motion. So for all the tournament organizers listening to this podcast, change your rules. <laughs> yeah. um, I mean, my simple solution. Yeah, and is copy to say the turn how um, rules while you're at it. Yeah, my simple solution is just to say that slices don't score. The the thing I like to see from slices from a technical perspective, one of my students did this to me once. I told him to play, and then I was sparring him like a week later. And I tried to cut around with a fire how, and he did the over slice, and he put me on the floor with it. And I was like, yeah, okay, that scores. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's a takedown, then. Yeah, and they're banned. They're dangerous. You know, he'd. <laughs> I tried to come around with a fair how, he'd got his blade on my arms and just push my arms over to the side. I was busy stepping because I wanted to step around him. No base plus pressure on the upper body. Down I went. Um, it was a really nice technique. Cool. And like, if you do that, then the then the slice is going to be effective. Very, very effective. If you make your opponent fall down, judges might notice. <laughs> I think the one the one slice I've had scored in a tournament was when I marched my opponent out of the Yeah. Yeah, that's like if somebody did that like if I was uh, if I was judging long, like long point rules and somebody sliced another person onto the ground, then that's like a four point thing because <laughs> You kept you kept hold of your sword and you took your, the other person down and stayed on your feet. So there you All have it. Points. The best slicing rules. Yeah. Um, but I think a big factor about a using a lot of these effectively is something Steve touched on previously, um, and it's recognizing that somebody's likely to turn around when you give them the parry. Um, so when they cut and you fall on their sword or you parry or whatever you want to put it as, you know that they're instantly going to begin the tear. And so you can kind of begin the counter almost preemptively. As soon as you feel the blade contact, you can start to push towards their sword for the slice or start to move to the fair position uh, for the under fair. And that's what you need to get yourself there early enough and not lose the contact. If you try to consciously wait, you'll almost always get hit. 
and lucky for us, that's a very common thing to do is cut around with the Tver. So it should be like open season for right. these counters. <laughs> Once how... everyone starts learning how to not do that and use the right. real how are you... techniques. How are you yeah. meant to know which counter to go for? By the because they're leaving the bind, so you've got no direct input there. How are you meant to know whether they're faring high or low to pick your counter? That's a more interesting question, and I don't think there's a good answer. Um, I've got no idea how the low counter is supposed to work based on the decision framework. There's a counter against the low tver how in Danzig, and yeah, I think in general the. I think in general RDL wants us to default to the slice because the slice another... breaks all of them. Yeah, yeah, the slice the slice works against all of them, and there's like an entire section on it. So I think, yeah, if I had to like make a decision, I'd say they want us to default to the slice, and then the other ones, like if you can get them, I guess. Okay. Oh, uh, I mean, I'm going to be facetious now, but there's another counter to the Twitter how in our modern game that we see a lot, which is where you get fared to fluke. After you hit, you just let go with your left hand, wrap up the blade, and pretend that you're doing a grappling at the sword. Ah, the Clooney yeah. counter. Yeah, that's in a, that's in the Clooney effects book. Yeah? That's actually historical. Yeah. There's a picture of it so, and everything. We can put I it like in the... That. Pretend that you're grappling. Yeah. No, I'll stop shitting on it then. Yeah. You just like tank a hit to your flank and then grab a but, sword. Well, I guess it allows you to get the highest head wound, right? That's pretty much. Except, isn't grappling like not allowed in sexual rules? Usually, yeah. Yeah. So um, you're tanking the hit with a sharp sword on the streets. You tank the flank hit. <laughs> But if you're caring about sharp swords, uh, then the Tverhau to the flank is basically not a hit. So Yeah, it's pretty useless. Trying to actually do real damage with that action is incredibly difficult. Tver is already a difficult cut to cut with, plus the flank is a big, solid part of the body with lots of muscles going in weird directions, which will turn your edge line. Plus, your doublet's going to be thick, plus... Yeah. But on the bright side, I've just had a look at the illustration, and the guy tanking that hit to the flank looks pretty sad. <laughs> <laughs> he probably is. There we go, just posting it in the channel. There's a crazy um, uh, game in uh, English like 18th and 19th century <laughs> country fair single stick where you're playing for the bleeding head wound um, with wooden sticks, basically. But one of the classic strategies is to cover your head with your left arm so that they can't hit you in the head because then they can't make your head bleed. <laughs> And then the next strategy is to smash them in the floating ribs with your stick until they bring their arm down because it hurts so much. Um, and then you can hit them in the head. Reminds me, um, in academic fencing, a lot of techniques, because they're not allowed to parry, pathetically, it's against the rules. But when you watch their actual cutting mechanics, all their strikes are designed to try and keep their heavily armored forearm in front of their face as much as possible as you're doing all these cuts they're carefully choreographing their arm movements to protect their head at the same time. Yeah, it's basically like Turhouse style cuts above the head with a with a one-handed saber isn't it? Yeah, and they have some interesting shield how like mechanics too. Um, but it's all high cuts to the other opponent's head in ways that keeps your arm. It's a lot of elbow movement and shoulder movement to keep your arm 
blocking you, which is pretty cool to watch. The, the one of the things I find probably most interesting about the counters is also the question of how you pre prevent the opponent using these, hypothetically speaking. And I think a big factor of it is the hilt lock uh, that was discussed a couple of episodes ago or last episode or something. If you're trying to like if you're trying to do nearly anything, all of the counters want you to move to your right side pretty much. And if you've just had your sword punched to the left side by their hilt, that takes a lot longer, so it's a lot harder to get your counter in in time. Mm. Yeah. Good thinking. So I think that's one of the reasons for the hilt knock in the described like cut around is in case they do know the counters, if you just cut around, they might use that. But if you punch their sword away first and it's moving in the wrong direction, you can do the counter while they're busy recovering the sword. And then yeah. your, your cut's too developed for the counter to be able to have an opening to exist anymore. Yeah. i got to say one, um, one interesting thing here to me, looking at this critically, is that we don't see wrestling at the sword in this section. Because classically, Twercopters is when people's hands go high. That's when they're open for a, a cheeky double leg or a cross hip throw. Yeah. Well, that's implied in Lou, though, um, in the slicing the arms against somebody who's trying to rush you to where plays. That, what about that, uh, the Clooney counter that we just mentioned? Tanking the hit and grabbing the sword. Well, that could also be against a missed thrust or something. I mean, it's got it's got no caption, it's got no context, does it? Um, it does have context. The Clooney is in the order of the gloss, but I haven't looked at this particular one to work out exactly what it matches with. There's one. I think there's one that ma there's two. There, there's two counters like that. One of them I think matches up with the failure, and the other one might be with this one. Yeah, yeah, there's one that lines up with the Tver to the Plow. And he does it again. So he has the spring. Da, 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 da. So against the failure, he grabs the blade. Right, yeah. Potentially after being hit by it. That's not really clear. He's pushing the blade down with his hand. Yeah, he's powering with his hand. That's actually a great counter to the failure, which I guess we'll talk about next week. Um, but we should make, sure, make a note to bring that into the next episode. Yeah. Yeah, the picture before this, there's a ca caption that says, uh, it's fair uh, to dem flug. So it is, okay. in fact, a counter to it. Yeah. You can, see that tasty, you can see that tasty thumb grip there, too. Yeah, and it kind of looks like he's doing a rising cut, which I know is not as common for doing it for the fair, as opposed to doing just a horizontal cut with the point really low. Yeah. Hard to say for sure. Yeah. Probably the last or one of the last things that might be worth mentioning is the the comment in the Twer Unter Twer about once you do this, they strike themselves with your sword. Yeah. Which is a really interesting little piece of description. But practically speaking, if you've got it in place right, you haven't necessarily made a super great kind of cutting action. It's not got a huge arc. But they should smash into the sword from behind and push it harder into their own body. Yeah, I'm not sure. Is that I know that people like to say that about a lot of techniques, especially including the uh, Duplarian, But I think this might be the only place where that it tells you that you're they're hitting you with their with your sword, or hitting themselves with your sword. I believe it is, and it's only in Danzig that it says that. 
this on that note by the way this this play kind of is also in lev in the uh Nachreisen section there is a play that says when he misuse in front of you and you hew after, if you then bind to his sword against the left side, if he strikes around out of the parry with the lateral quickly to your right side, come to him in dust with the lateral forward in front under his sword against his left side at his neck. So to right. me, it, sorry? I was going to say there's a whole lot of Tver in the Austerminer section. Yeah, yeah. But that that little uh, blurb there is only in Lev in the uh, Nachreisen and it seems to me that it's the describing the same play. So it is it does also kind of appear in love, but in a different spot. Thank you, love. Yeah. And it doesn't so two notes about that actually. One, it doesn't say he hits himself with your sword. And two, it uses the word indus. Which I think is an interesting addition that can be pondered upon why he uses it there. Well, we'll get to that. Yes. I have no idea, but I'm, I'm sure I'll have an idea by then. <laughs> yeah. All right. Should we wrap up here? Or has anybody got anything else to add? All right. Thank you very much, everybody, for listening to this episode 16 of Fencing by the Book. Our panel today have been Johanna Hopfgardner, Michael Chidester, Stephen Cheney, TQ, and I've been your host, Mike Swaridge. Thank you for listening.